Psalm 130. Let's hear now from God's Word. A song of ascent. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the holy and inerrant word of our Lord. One of the things that I love about the Psalms is that they cover the full spectrum of human emotion. On this, our Reformation Sunday, in which we uh, give careful thoughts to those Reformers who have preceded us and the great work that they did for Christ's church, it's vital that we throw in a quote from John Calvin. Because of the commitment that Calvin had towards theological precision... And because of his appropriate, I think, emphasis upon God's sovereign divine grace, he's oftentimes caricatured as one who is cold and sort of calloused and detached. But listen to how Calvin speaks of the Psalms. He says, they are an anatomy of all parts of the soul. In other words, when put together, the Psalms represent the entire person. Calvin said there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. The Holy Spirit has has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities. In short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. Isn't that great? See, all of the emotions that are distracting to us, all of those emotions that cause restlessness and that cause agitation at the core of who we are, all of those complexities of the inner life are represented here in the Psalms. Perhaps as God's people, we functionally live as though God is sort of detached as though he is removed from our lives, functionally living as though we are deists. Yes, God is there, but where is he really in the sphere of my life? And what the Psalms do is they help us redirect our understanding to know, to be reminded that God is not only here with us, but he is in all, through all, working in all things, bringing about his divine purposes. And so the only way to grow in true self-awareness is to do what the psalmist does, to strive to live with God in the middle of life, to strive to live with God over all. Yes, we go through hardships in this life, but what we ought to ask ourselves is, what does it mean to live through such hardships in the context of a covenantal relationship with the Lord of glory? And when we think about all of the emotions that we experience in this life, we know that those emotions are complex, that they are multifaceted, 
That perhaps we can have sort of this love-hate thing going on with our feelings. That one minute you're elated over your circumstances, delighting in the way in which your life is going. And the next you can't stand the way that you feel. We instinctively know that our emotions can be deceptive. We know intuitively that we should not trust those fleeting feelings. We would all agree with the prophet Jeremiah, the way that he puts it in chapter 17, that the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. And even though we know that our emotions can deceive us, and in fact do deceive us, we continue to place validity upon those emotions. We know that we ought not to be driven by our feelings, and yet how often do you allow your feelings to be the determining factor behind the choices that you make in life? As David Pallison puts it, to be feeling-oriented is the central motivational problem in people. And yet over and again we find ourselves being driven by those feelings, feelings that oftentimes seem to overwhelm and to dominate us. Perhaps anger, and it can seem like a boiling cauldron within, so that every word that comes out of our mouths is like acid, wounding those who we proclaim to love. Depression can absolutely seem to overwhelm us where maybe we don't even see the warning signs come on. And it can feel as though we're lost at sea with wave upon wave pounding over us, plunging us further down into despondency. Or guilt over our past failures as we think of the things that we've done. Can I really be forgiven for the things in my past? Or guilt over our current struggles because we just can't seem to shake that struggle that we encounter, giving in to that sin over and again. We look at those around us and they don't seem to struggle the same way that I do. We become masters at blame shifting as we think about all of our failures perhaps. If I can look and if I can blame people, if I can blame circumstances in my life, then I'm a victim and I don't have to work at change and I'm justified at holding on to all of my bitterness within. It's these types of thoughts, it's these raging emotions that we can experience, that all of us experience at different times and at different degrees in various circumstances that we experience and face in life. And as you know, God's Word never skirts around the reality of suffering and struggle that we might experience in, God, in, in, in this life. And God's Word never tells us that just because we are His people that we are somehow immune to the hardships of life. And what the Psalms help us to understand is that we are to take all of those experiences that we encounter in this life, all of the various emotions that we might feel, and we are to take them to the Lord. The Psalms, we could say, are meant to inform our intellect. They're meant to help us understand more who the Lord is, more who we are, and what our relationship in covenant looks like. The Psalms are meant to direct our wills. They're meant to guide us, to inform us on how we are to live as God's covenant people. And the Psalms are meant to form our emotions toward a proper end. A proper end that is not an end that is filled with self-service, but rather that we are to use our emotions to an end of seeking to give glory to God. And the beauty of the Psalms, you see, is that the psalmist never skirts around what we might think of as the most embarrassing of emotions. 
There are times when, as the psalmist writes, the psalmist feels as though he is forsaken by God. He feels abandoned at times as though God has perhaps forgotten him. There are circumstances that he experiences in his life that don't always seem to line up with his theological convictions. And when that happens, he is sometimes plunged into sorrow and fear and terror, wondering whether God will respond. The Psalms, you see, are real life. It's in the Psalms that you meet God where you are. And what Psalm 130 does is it helps us understand how we are to take sometimes these jumbled thoughts and feelings when we find ourselves in the depths and how we are to take those things and bring them to the Lord. The picture that we have in this psalm, we could say the context in which it was originally written is of one who has sunk down into the depths, so far into the depths of what we might even call today depression. But the hope is that there is this lifeline, if you will, that is thrown to the psalmist, that is wrapped around him and pulls him out of the depths of despair. And so three things that we'll consider from this psalm this morning. The state in which the psalmist finds himself, namely one of being in the depths. Hope that he finds in the nature of his Lord. And finally, climbing out of the darkness. We could say a process to get out of those depths. Well, first, let's talk about the depths that the psalmist finds himself in. Notice that the psalmist here does not address the particulars of why he finds himself in this condition. Other psalms that you might read, Psalm 2, for example, sets sort of a, a preface, prefatory comments that set the historical context of those psalms. In that psalm, for example, David is fleeing from his son Absalom. But here we don't have any sort of context in which the psalmist wrote or why he wrote. We don't know if it's a struggle that he's going through as he thinks about inward guilt. We don't know if it's opposition, perhaps, that's coming to him from the outside. Perhaps circumstances, perhaps individuals who are opposed to him, who are seeking to belittle him, to attack him because of his commitment to the Lord. Very simply, we don't know how he found himself here in the depths. And yet I think this is very pastoral of the psalm. Because you know that if you've ever found yourself in the depths, you really don't want someone coming along, pointing out all of the faults in your life and telling you what you've done to contribute to that position that you find yourself in. You don't need someone coming, telling you all of the different things that you've done that have led to these struggles in life. But the reality is you are there and you need help and you need hope. And you know, you could find yourself there, sort of in that pit of despair. You could find yourself there immediately, or you could find yourself there gradually. For example, maybe you're going along fine, and everything in your life seems to be in order. Everything seems to be very stable and very predictable in your world. But then, almost like getting blindsided at an intersection, something happens in your life that just shakes your world. Perhaps a person whom you thought was one of your greatest friends breaks a confidence. Or that child, of all the children that you had, that child was supposed to be the good one. And suddenly it seems as though he's morphed into someone completely different overnight. Or you face the possibility of losing your job and you begin to think about all of the ramifications that are going to flow from that. Having to look for a job which you haven't done in years. 
Or maybe your doctor calls and wants to set up an appointment to have further lab work done because he doesn't like the things that he saw in your routine physical. And there you are, you see very suddenly in the depths. Or it could have been a gradual descent as you find yourself sort of slipping down as an incline, slowly descending. It doesn't seem as you're slipping down that there's anything to grasp onto. Perhaps it's little moments that build one on top of another. Fear of losing control of your circumstances. Fear of losing control of your children. Fear of the future. Fear because you're not sure that you can trust God. Maybe you're in the depths because you think back to all of the hopes and dreams that you had in your life in those younger years. And you look at where you are now. And life simply doesn't measure up anywhere close to those dreams and expectations that you had. And so you become filled with disappointment and bitterness toward your spouse or your children from holding you back. Maybe you're filled with self-pity or with shame and a sense of failure. Emotionally, at some point, we have all felt like the psalmist. And if we haven't, the good news is we will at some point in our life. And when that happens, whether it's a sudden onslaught or whether it's a gradual sort of progression downward into the depths, we have, I think, this tendency, sort of this knee-jerk reaction to tend toward isolation, withdrawal not only from others but withdrawal from God, maybe even disappointment and even anger towards Him because we know that He is in control of everything in my life. We know that he can change my circumstances. We know that he can change the difficult people in my life. And yet he chooses not to do so. And we become frustrated and agitated toward him, isolating ourselves from the covenant community, from the local church. But notice what the psalmist does from the very beginning. Instead of isolation, instead of blame shifting, instead of even playing that trump card of victimization, it's out of the depths that he cries to his covenant Lord, to Yahweh, The Lord of glory, the great I am, who has redeemed his people from slavery. I cry to you, O Lord. And so the psalmist doesn't do what we're often told to do in our own lives, which is exhaust our own resources, and then when you can't do anything else yourself, then go to the Lord in prayer. But rather what he does is from the very beginning when he's in the depths, is he goes to the Lord in prayer. And he does not approach God with an arrogant posture of entitlement. But instead, he goes to the Lord confidently, and he goes to the Lord in humility. You see, by addressing him as Lord, he is reminding himself of who he is, and he's reminding himself who God is. I cannot address him as Lord, you see, while at the same time bringing accusations against him. Ed Welch says that when you pray... In order to avoid accusations toward the Lord, in order to avoid self-righteousness within your own heart, pray in the context of the covenant. To speak to Him as Lord changes everything. It reminds you that He is your Creator, that He is your Rescuer, that you belong to Him, that, as Welch says, He is both your liege and the love of your soul. And so to cry to our Lord, to know that He hears us, is to take our sufferings, and it's not to ignore those sufferings, but it's to take those sufferings and to infuse them with hope. 
So when we find ourselves in the depths, you see, we are to cry out to him as Lord. Crying out to him as Lord puts our heart in the proper posture of humility because it's in the presence of the great one that we are properly humbled. And so that, you see, is his first response as he goes to the Lord in whom there is hope. And so when we find ourselves there in the depths, we must do what the psalmist does. Cry out to the Lord. Cry out to our God. Cry out to him, our heavenly father, knowing that he hears our voice, knowing that he is attentive in his mercy. You see, this must be a deep rooted conviction within our hearts and within our minds because we're not always going to feel that this is true. But it must be such a conviction, such a commitment within our hearts that regardless of how we feel, we know that he is Lord and that we are his people. And what is the hope that is thrown down to the psalmist? What is it, you see, that pulls him out of the depths? What are the things that are sort of intertwined that when he meditates upon them, they act as that lifeline, sort of pulling him out of the depths? Well, it is hope in the very nature of God, hope in the Lord's forgiveness, in his love and in his redemption. It's God's forgiveness that we read of in verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. And we might think to ourselves, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I acknowledge that. But sometimes I find myself there in the depths, and I don't always see a direct correlation between my own sin as a contributing factor to being there in the depths. So how does this help me to be reminded that the God, that our Lord is the Lord of forgiveness? Well, remember in Mark chapter 2, you recall the paralytic that Jesus healed. He's the one whose friends brought him on a mat to see Jesus. But when they come to the house, it is so filled with people that they can't get into the presence of the Lord. And they're not to be deterred. And so they go up onto the roof of the home. And they pull the roof apart and they lower their friend on the mat there in front of Jesus. And you remember what Jesus says to him? My son, your sins are forgiven. Now we're familiar with that story, but, but wait a second. Imagine you were there. Wait, wait, here is a guy who is paralyzed. All he wants to do is walk again. And he is in the presence of the Holy One, the only one in human history who can heal him of his condition. And he heals, rather forgives the guy's sins. You see, it's offensive to the point that we do not see what our biggest need is. When we are in the depths, we think the biggest need is for us to get out of the depths. When a trial comes into our lives, we think the biggest need that we have is simply for that trial to be removed. But what we learn is that the main problem in your life is not your circumstances. It's not the people around you who are difficult. It's not even the physical pain that you might experience or any other form of, dif- of discomfort. And that is in no way to minimize those things or to say that those things are insignificant. But what Jesus is teaching in Mark chapter 2 and what the psalmist is driving at, I believe here, is that the biggest problem in your life is something much deeper than the presenting problem that you think it is. It is our sin that separates us from God. 
And so in Mark chapter 2, when Jesus forgives the man's sins before healing him, he is telling us that no matter how bad our condition might be, no matter how we have ended up in that condition, it is the presence of sin in our life that is our biggest problem. And it is the forgiveness that Christ offers that is the greatest news that we can ever hear. So you might think to yourself, okay, so I'm in the depths and I'm supposed to think about my sin. I'm already down. Do I really need to dwell upon my sin more to make myself feel worse than I already do? How Calvinistic of you. Well, as much as we might not like it, See, the reality is we have not loved God deeply enough from the heart. It's true that you are more concerned with your success and comfort more than you are God's kingdom and His purposes. It's true that you are prideful and that you do stand in judgment over others. The psalmist sees his sin. He sees his need. He sees that this need for forgiveness is more critical than even the suffering that he endures. But of course, he doesn't stay there. Oh, Lord, as I consider the lack of trust in you, as I consider my failure to love you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, as I consider my critical spirit, as I consider the lust and the anger within my heart, if all of my iniquities were laid bare before you, oh, Lord, who could stand in the presence of a holy and righteous God We are all undone, but with you there is forgiveness. And so as the psalmist sees his sin within, it drives him outside of himself to stand in awe of the forgiveness of God. What great love that he would love the unlovely. What great mercy that he would spare those who had nothing but hatred in their heart and indifference towards him. You see, the tendency of the one who is in desperation is to be introspective, to dwell too much and too frequently upon the self. And oftentimes it's that introspection that has contributed to that state of despair to begin with. But for some reason, we think and reason to ourselves that continued introspection will eventually lead us out. But as the psalmist looks within, he does so against the mirror of God's word, of his standard of righteousness, and he recognizes that he is much worse than he originally thought. If the Lord were to keep a record of his wrongs, no one could stand. You see, if all we do is have an honest admission of sin, but we don't have an understanding of forgiveness, it's only going to lead to condemnation and guilt. But it's that introspection that needs to be transformed into extrospection, that is looking outside of the self in faith and in repentance to the finished work of Christ. So that for every glance that we take inwardly and recognize our sin, we take 10, 20, 30 glances to the cross of Christ. And so a self-awareness, rather than being preoccupied with ourselves, is meant to lead us to look outside of ourselves in faith and in love to our Redeemer. You may have noticed that Pastor McWilliams is out of town this morning. And since he's out of town, I'll give you a little insight into his character. In case you haven't picked up on this yet from your time at Covenant, he cares about you. 
And there is nothing that brings him greater delight than leading God's people in worship of the Lord. And so each week, beginning on Monday morning, he very methodically and carefully puts together our worship order with an intentional design to lead God's people to help us grow in getting our eyes off of ourselves and onto the greatness of who the Lord is. So that when we worship together Sunday morning and Sunday evening, we're allowing that worship to be the thing that forms us, the thing that shapes us, the thing that we see, this is what my identity is as God's covenant son or daughter. And then when you go out into the world and every voice around you is telling you to be more concerned with your own pursuits, to care more about what others think of you, to think about all of the things that you deserve, to think of how no one really appreciates you and, and tells you what a great person you are and no one really understands you, and that a pursuit of self-indulgence should be the thing that drives your pursuits in life. You're enabled to say, no, that's not the thing that shapes me. My identity is not in the pursuit of those things, but my identity is shaped in my relationship with the Lord. We could say that the goal of this psalm, really the goal of all of the psalms, is that we would end in outward looking, in faith and repentance to the one alone who can forgive. And as we grow to understand how much we are forgiven, it leads to a greater and greater love toward our God in which we are filled with hope and with trust, waiting upon Him for ultimate and for final deliverance. See, let's just speculate for a moment that the psalmist found himself in the depths because life is just hard. Circumstances are tough. And let's be honest, people are difficult. But when you get to the end of the psalm, you don't read about a change of circumstance. Instead, what the psalmist does is he speaks truth to his soul. He speaks the truth of God's word to the very core of who he is. And lasting change is the result. It's a change of disposition as he looks to the Lord. Whether those people or whether those circumstances change or not. What brings change to him is hope, understanding the steadfast, immovable love of God. That he is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious one, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And it is the confidence of the Lord's plentiful redemption that all of our sins, past, present, and future, are atoned for. It's that confidence that leads the psalmist to such joy and delight within his heart. As we see in verse 8, It is God himself who will accomplish this. He will redeem his people from all their iniquities. You see, if the psalmist is addressing the problem of guilt because of the presence of sin that he finds in his own life, then the solution is to look to the substitutionary work of his God, that he will redeem his covenant people that he himself will come down in this act of redemption. And so that cord that is wrapped around the psalmist that brings him out is the reality of God's forgiveness, the faithfulness of God's love, the trustworthiness of his nature, bringing a redemption that is 
that is full as all of our sin, you see, is atoned for. It's the very gospel of our Savior that brings comfort to his soul. Well, So how do we get out of the darkness, out of the depths, out of that despair that life's circumstances inevitably bring? Well, first, it's a recognition that someone has already gone down into the depths for us and has emerged victorious, and our identity is now in Him. That it is God Himself who has worked redemption by going down into the depths for us. That as we confess this morning and as we confess every Lord's Day, you see, He descended into hell. In His suffering, He went to the depths for us. That our Lord Jesus cried out upon the cross, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? As He was plunged into the depths, as He became sin for us. And as He cried out to His God, the heavens were closed to Him. So that now when we go to the Lord, we can know and have such confidence that He hears our prayers, that our Savior was abandoned, that we might have access to that heavenly throne room. This is the basis of the confidence that we have in our Redeemer. This is how we know that there is a God who hears us because our substitute has united us with Himself. And as God's people, we need to remember, we need to dwell upon the great redemption that is ours in Christ. Someone has said, how often do you hear a great illustration You participate in a Christ-centered worship service, and your heart is moved. But within minutes, it is as if you never heard a word and never participated. You leave the same way you entered, a case of spiritual amnesia. When you are in despair, when you're in the depths, when you're in even depression, you need to remember the forgiveness that is already yours in Christ. You need to remember your identity, and you need to remember it again and again and again. If sin is our biggest problem, then remembering, recalling, and living out of the forgiveness of sins is the deepest answer of all. And second, we climb out of the depths by allowing fear to drive out fear. Again, in verses 3 and 4. You see, as we think about all of our sin being exposed before the Holy Lord, all of our iniquities and all of our failures being known fully before Him, that is not an inherently good thing. It's a fearful thing. That's a terrible thing. As the writer of Hebrews puts it, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Imagine all that you've ever done, all that you've ever thought, all that you've ever conspired within your heart, exposed not only before the entire watching world, but exposed before God Himself. But you see, when that is contrasted with verse 4, we read that there is forgiveness, forgiveness that is full. And Jesus Christ, all of our sin and all of our defilement is taken from us And we are now clothed in His righteousness. And as a result, there is fear and awe and amazement that He would love us with such a love to this magnitude. As we think about the heinous nature of our sins and the glorious nature of forgiveness, our hearts are changed. 
like the woman whose tears fell upon the feet of Jesus and she used her hair to wipe his feet clean. She loved so much because she was forgiven much. It's that type of fear that drives out all other fears. Do you ever think that your sins are too bad and that forgiveness for those sins requires you to get your acts together first? If so, you don't fear God. You are minimizing His forgiveness. In contrast, the fear of the Lord leads us to believe that when God makes promises too good to be true, they are indeed true. And so the holiness of God as it is made manifest in His great forgiveness leaves me both amazed at the magnitude of His grace and the seriousness of my sin. It's the fear of the Lord that displaces all other fears and worries and anxieties. When I fear the Lord, I have nothing else to fear. When I appropriately understand the fear of the Lord, that He is absolutely sovereign over all things, that He is infinite in His love, that He is unlimited in His compassion and in His mercy and in His grace, it is those truths that sort of buoy me up against the onslaught of the waves that come in my life. What greater news, you see, can we hear than this? If this does not pull us up as God's people from the depths, then nothing will. And third, we climb out of the depths in kingdom anticipation. Again, verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning more than watchmen for the morning. You know, to be the night watchman would be a fearful thing. To never know what your enemies might be conspiring out there in the darkness, to never know when they might attack. A constant uneasiness on part of the watchman that his ear would be attuned to every little noise that he hears around him. And what the watchman longs for more than anything else is for the darkness to be gone. There is nothing that brings his heart more joy and more relief than the arrival of the sun. He knows that it's coming. He knows that the darkness will not last forever. And as soon as that moment arrives, he proclaims boldly and loudly and with great joy, the morning is here. No more time for fear. No more time for the uncertainty of darkness. And this double proclamation in verse 6 emphasizes the point that you must speak the truth of God's nature deep down into your heart so that we confidently hope in the imminent arrival of our great King and our Bridegroom. Just as every passing moment brings the morning closer for the watchman and brings almost a little bit of relief as that morning comes closer and closer, So every day gone by brings the return of our Savior one day nearer. And it's this confident hope that we must speak to our souls, that one day we will see what John saw in Revelation chapter 21, a new heavens and a new earth, and a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
So don't assume that things are always going to work according to your agenda. Don't presume that he will bring about things in your life that are according to your definition of what is good. But know that he is good. Know that he will return. And allow your heart to be captivated by such truth. In the light of eternity, how we take even the most dreadful and horrible of trials that we might experience in this life, and they pale in comparison to an eternity with our Savior. And as we wait in anticipation, we wait, you see, as a covenant community. The psalm, as you may have noticed, is called a psalm of ascents. It is a psalm, along with Psalm 120 through 134, a collection of 15 psalms that are put together as a collection of psalms that God's people would recite and would sing together as they ascended the hill to the holy city of David to give worship to the Lord at the temple. They were psalms that were used in corporate worship. And so the point is, is that worship is something that we do together as God's redeemed people, as a called out people, as an overflow of our identity in Him. And so when those times come, and when we feel completely overwhelmed, the context of the psalm encourages us to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, to continue meeting together, encouraging one another all the more as we see the day approaching. You know, if the, if the psalmist were alive today, he might say something like this, if I an Old Testament psalmist who had yet to see the coming of Jesus can speak with this kind of hope, how much more can you, who have witnessed the cross, the unmistakable evidence of forgiveness of sins?